Thank you, Kayla. You did a great job. You have more to be thankful for than you know. Because just before the service, I had lost both my Bible and my iPod. And I'll tell you right now, it was going to be a long service if I had to remember everything that I wanted to tell you tonight. Your new hero should be Roger Weaver, who found those said items. Because I am distrustful of technology, I always carry a written copy of my message in my Bible. I've discovered a new problem. If you lose both your Bible and your iPod, that really doesn't help you much. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8 tonight, Revelation chapter number 8. Now, if you'll remember from Revelation chapter number 7, we were looking at the fate of those individuals that we had come to call the tribulation saints, those who had been saved during the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church and prior to the judgments falling on the earth, there is this time called the tribulation period. Tribulation period, the first three and a half years are what we begin to look at tonight. Now, after reading the events of chapter 7, one might be concluded, might be well come to the place that they say, well, if there's going to be a great ingathering of souls during the tribulation period, I'll just wait. I'll wait until the rapture of the church, and that will be my signal to get saved. Because then I'll know it's time to get right with God because the end is near. Well, let me just by way of introduction, and I'd give you a few good reasons that's not a good idea. First of all, you might die before that time comes. You might die tonight. You have no guarantee of one more day of life. And if you die, then you're going to be eternally separated from God, and there's no second chance there. The second reason why waiting for the rapture or the tribulation to be saved is a bad idea is because those who are saved during this period of the great tribulation will experience great persecution by the forces of the Antichrist, and almost certainly they will be martyred for their faith. And the third reason for not waiting until the rapture or the tribulation to be saved is that many Bible teachers, and I don't think you can be dogmatic about it, but many Bible teachers and scholars believe that it will be only those who have never heard the gospel who will be saved during that period, that those who have heard the gospel prior to the tribulation, prior to the rapture, will not have another opportunity. It's a sobering thought. Obviously, the fate of your soul is not something that you want to gamble on. So after the interlude that we we examined in Revelation chapter 7, we now resume the account of the breaking of the seals of that seven-sealed scroll. Six seals have been opened And judgment has poured out on the earth, and now the seventh and final seal is opened. This seventh seal reveals the seven trumpet judgments of Revelation. 
Let's first look of all at the seventh seal, verse number one. We're going to be covering chapters eight and nine tonight, so you need to hold on to your hat. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, I heard a cynical preacher once say, the Bible says that there will be no women in heaven. And the reason, he says, there will be no women in heaven is because Revelation 8, 1 says that there will be silence in heaven. Now, we don't believe that's true, obviously, and that was not this cynical preacher who said that. I just want you to know. Of course, that's not the reason. The word about silence in heaven reminds us of the prophet Habakkuk who wrote in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All of heaven, in other words, stood in awe and silence in expectation of what is about to happen. Now, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 8 talk about a group of special angels in heaven. The Bible reveals in Numbers chapter 10 that trumpets play a special, very important part in Bible history. If we look at Bible history, we discover that Bible, in the Bible, people blew trumpets for a variety of reasons, but there are three very important reasons that they blew trumpets. One was to announce a public gathering. Of course, they didn't have sirens back in those days, telephones or television. So when they wanted to gather together a crowd, they would play trumpets and the crowd would gather whenever that time was present. Secondly, they blew trumpets to announce a call to battle. Whenever war was declared and a nation was called to war, the trumpets were blown. And third, there were trumpets blown to announce any kind of a special event like the anointing of a king or the dedication of a temple or any kind of special, extraordinary event. But in a prophetic sense, trumpets meant primarily that God was getting ready to intervene in the affairs of men. There's a special group here, a special group of angels. It says, and they were given seven Trumpets. The seven angels are probably, we don't know for sure, but probably are archangels. They are given an extremely important task in the sounding of these trumpets. They would probably include Michael, the archangel, who appears also in the book of Daniel. I don't know if you realize it, but only three angels are actually named in the Bible. Gabriel. Michael, and Lucifer. Now, the apocryphal book of Enoch, also an ancient book, but not a part of our Bible, gives the names of those seven trumpet angels as Ariel, Raphael, Ragiel, Michael, Serical, Gabriel, and Phanical. If you'll notice that every one of those names ended in the word E-L, and E-L is short for the name of God. Now, look with me at verse number 3, the significance of another angel. Then another angel, having a 
golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, the altar of incense was very important in uh, the Old Testament economy. The ark uh, or the altar of incense was the closest piece of furniture to the Ark of the Covenant. It sat right outside the veil that separated between the Holy of Holies and the priest. The smoke of the incense then would accompany the prayers of Israel as they ascended into God. Verse Verse 3 says that another angel makes a an appearance. This angel acts much like a, a priest would in heaven. Some commentators believe this angel to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, although I don't believe it's possible to be dogmatic here, I don't think so <clears throat> for this simple reason. When the Lord does appear to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, he is never referred to as an angel. He is always referred to as the angel of God, the angel of the Lord. The important thing, though, here is the angel is carrying an incense filled, or a censer filled with incense. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we begin to look at the smoke of this incense, and these are, first of all, we're told the prayer of the saints. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints assembled before God from the angel's hands. Now, I don't know if you know or understand why the Catholics believe and practice praying to the saints, why that's important to them. We find the answer here in the phrase, the prayer of the saints. In verses 3 and 4, they believe this refers to the prayers of all those people who have, a, who have died and have thus achieved the, sta- the status of sainthood. While we believe that the Bible teaches that every believer is a saint, that every born-again Christian is a saint. But I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider that some of your prayers, the prayers that you have prayed, are stored up in heaven and that there is a time that's coming in the future that your prayers are going to ascend before God. Whenever you pray a prayer of praise, you're putting something into heaven. So the prayers of the saints are stored up. They're prayers that ascend before God. I think that's a, a rather beautiful picture. Every time you pray, for example, the Lord's Prayer, also called model prayer. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will on earth be done as it is in heaven, that's one of those prayers that's stored up. But here is the, here prayer ascends as judgment descends. This is God's answer to the prayers of God's people who have prayed all down through the ages this prayer. How long, O Lord? The book of Psalm records many of those how long prayers. Psalm 4.2 says, How long will the wicked be allowed to dishonor the Messiah? Psalm 6, 
verses 1 through 3, how long until we are healed and no longer do the things that provoke God's wrath. Psalm 13, how long will it seem like God has forgotten us? Psalm 62, 3, how long will the, will the righteous be attacked? Psalm 80, 14, will God re, how long will God refuse to answer the prayers of his people? Psalm 90, verse 13, how long before the Lord returns? And on and on they go. And Revelation 6 and 9 and 10, how long until God avenges the blood of of his martyrs and the answer is here and the time is now the judgments are revealed in verses 5 and 6 I'll just read them to you without comment then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake and so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the second thing that we see is the sounding of those trumpets The trumpet judgments correspond roughly to the plagues that we see unleashed on ancient Egypt. The plagues of ancient Egypt were in answer to the prayers of God's people. The people had been praying, how long, O Lord, will we suffer in this way? How long will it be until we receive our deliverance? And so also the trumpet judgments are an answer to the prayers of of the tribulation saints who have prayed, how long, Lord? The prophet Joel prophesied in Joel 2, 30 and 31, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. In Revelation 8, 7, we see this prophecy fulfilled. First of all, the first trumpet, the vegetation of the earth is struck with hail and fire and blood. The first angel sounded and the hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. According to what we read here, one-third of the earth was burned up, one-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass. The first trumpet parallels the Old Testament record of the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it as recorded in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and it also corresponds to the seventh plague on Egypt in the day of Moses. This is a literal judgment that falls on one-third of the earth's surface, burning up all the vegetation that they land on. The second trumpet, the seas are struck, says a burning star fell. And then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships was destroyed. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and it says something like, or some translations use the word as it were. It's to let you know that it was like a mountain, but it wasn't a mountain. 
According to these verses, one-third of the sea became blood, one-third of the marine life is destroyed, and one-third of the world's ships are destroyed. This corresponds to the first plague in Egypt during the days of Moses, Exodus chapter 7. The result of this catastrophe, as I said, one-third of the sea is blood, one-third of the marine life is destroyed, one-third of the world's ships are destroyed. Now, if you've ever been by the sea... When there has been a great deal of death as far as fish and wildlife, I just want you to think for a moment what the stench is like when one-third of the fish and of the sea creatures of the world die at the same time. I think that the, it's almost unimaginable. The third trumpet... The waters are struck, and here we're talking about the freshwater supply of the world. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters become Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. The third angel cast forth a great star from heaven and it will contaminate one-third of earth's freshwater supply. This again corresponds to the first plague in Egypt and this falling star is called wormwood, which means bitter. It's interesting to consider that perhaps we have a, a foreshadowing of this particular event in a terrible atomic accident that happened in Russia some years ago. It occurred at a city named Chernobyl in the Ukraine in 1986. Chernobyl is the Russian word for wormwood. The fourth trumpet, the heavens struck, talks about the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, uh, was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them was darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about the sound. The fourth trumpet deals with the luminous bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, and how they affect the earth. This trumpet echoes the ninth plague of Egypt. The light from the sun and the moon and the stars, we are told, are going to be diminished by one-third. We find in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 21 and 22 that Jesus said, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, not ever shall be. And, until, and unless these days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. What does it mean when it tells us that these days are going to be shortened? Well, it could mean that the number of days themselves are going to be shortened. But that's probably not the answer here because the Bible says there's a set time frame for this to take place. 
Dr. Charles Ryrie and others believe that what this is talking about is that this, there is going to be a cosmic change that is so drastic that the, ro- the rotation of the earth is going to be affected and the 24-hour cycle will become a 16-hour cycle, diminished by one-third. The last three trumpet judgments are marked off <clears throat> from the other four by the identification as the three woes. The fifth trumpet, the first woe, is the demons from the abyss. Then the fifth, trump, the fifth angel, this is the chapter 9, verse 1, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose over the pit like a smoke from a great furnace. And so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. When verse 1 says, I saw a star fallen, it is literally a star having fallen. It is past tense, speaking of an event that has already happened. I think it's describing the fall of Satan. This angel that is talked about is given the key to the bottomless pit. Literally, it is the abyss. It's the place of incarceration of the especially evil, demonic spirits, fallen angels. Jude chapter, Jude verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. I believe this is the group of, that he is describing now. Scripture indicates two kinds of demons. Those that are free and are at work in our world today and those that are bound and in prison, according to Jude verse 6 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. They, these are obviously those who have until this time been bound. In verse 3 we read what happens when they are released. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth has power. Have anybody ever stepped on a scorpion? You remember it for the rest of your life, I assure you. I stepped on one in my closet. I didn't know how, but I thought I'd stepped on a nail. I'd never done a handstand in my closet before, but I did one that day. Because I assure you, the only thing on your mind is getting off of what you're stepping on. And that's the scorpion. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor green thaling, nor any tree. The things which locusts normally bother. But only those men who had not who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they are not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. 
they will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now these beasts are like to locusts in appearance. They're going to have a very odd appearance indeed. So when this bottomless pit is opened and the smoke boils forth, it will veil the landscape and the whole sky in darkness, not only with the smoke, but with a great swarm of demons. There is an impression being created for us that this demonic force will make a conquest of humanity. And verse 4 tells us that the only people protected from these creatures were those who had the seal of God on their forehead, according to verse 4. Now, we talked about this a little last time, I think, but uh, obviously the mark of the beast, which the Antichrist will require anyone to have who lives during the tribulation period in order to buy and sell and have commerce is, a, is but a... <clears throat> shadow of what was real and that is that God has placed his mark on these individuals in order to protect them. Now these locusts appear like horses that are prepared for battle which would describe that they're like a conquering host that wishes for victory. Every one of them is wearing a golden crown. They are obvious authorized to rule to a certain extent in men's life. But even at this we have to Note God's sovereignty in all this, that God's still in control. How, how can you say, Brother John, reading this, that God's still in control? First of all, <clears throat> verse 2 says, and, it, and it's uh, given in, in a divine passive, it says, and they were allowed. They were allowed. So there was only, they could only do what God allowed them to do. Verse, and number 2 they were given a specific amount of time in which they could do that. It says they were only given five months. And there was a limit to the extent of even the torment. They were not allowed to kill their victims. And in fact, the victims might want to die, but they cannot. They have a human appearance. They have faces. That would indicate that they are intelligent creatures rather than just some kind of an insect or an animal life. They seem to be perverse imitations of the living creatures who surround the throne of God. But where the living creatures reflect the character of God, these scorpion-like locusts reflect the character of Satan. Verse 8 to 10 tells us that they have hair like women which would indicate these demonic entities are attractive and seductive to mankind, and yet they have teeth like lions, and they are ferocious with their bite. They have armor-like iron breastplates, which would indicate that they are difficult to attack and to destroy, and they have wings, which make a great sound. They are terrifying and demoralizing to those who see and hear them. And one of the most important descriptions of these scorpion-like creatures is the fact that they are equipped with tails like scorpions to torture physically, mentally, emotionally men and women for five months. Five months 
of unrelented suffering. They could torment, but they could not kill. In verse 11 we read, And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek has the name Apollyon. The name of this angel in both Hebrew and Greek is destroyer. This is a demonic force which is led by a special fallen angel which may or may not be Satan himself. The sixth trumpet and the second woe is the eastern invasion. One woe is past, verse 13 or verse 12. Behold, still two more woes are coming after this. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind so in verses 9 or chapter 9 verses 13 through 24 we see the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates, and they are released. Now, the fact that these four angels are bound at the river Euphrates is probably not coincidental. The river Euphrates was one of the rivers that came out of the Garden of Eden that we see in Genesis. So if you follow the biblical record, you'll see that it was near the river Euphrates that Satan tempted Adam and Eve. So it was near the river Euphrates that man first sinned. It was near the river Euphrates that Cain killed his brother Abel, the first murder. It was near the river Euphrates that Babylon and Babel were built in defiance of God. Geographically, it is now in the land of Iraq where we find the location of the river Euphrates in ancient Babylon. You can make of that whatever you want. But what I want you to note is that those four angels are being released there because it is geographically the source of all humanity's sin problem. It is the very birthplace of man's sin problem. God is going to bring it all right back to the beginning so that man's sin problem is dealt with finally and completely in the same place that man's sin problem began. Verse 16 through 17 reveal an evil army of 200,000, 200 million horsemen. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. Do you have any concept of how many 200 million is? I had a little trouble with that, and I began to think about that a little bit. It's hard to conceive of an army that large. But someone said, if you had an army of 200 million men, and you put them shoulder to shoulder, They'd be a mile wide. A mile wide, and then if you put them back to back, 
that would be 86 miles long. That's quite an army. The devastation is revealed in verses 18 and 19. It's almost hard to believe. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and brimstone which came out of their mouths and for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. As incredible as it seems, one-third of the population is destroyed. That's one-third of the population of the world. One-fourth of the world's population was killed in the previous judgments in chapter 6. So the combined total loss is now one-half of the world's population. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, one-half of all humanity is dead. Now, what would you expect to be the reaction that seeing those kinds of judgments. I think the mo- maybe the most astounding thing here is not the judgments themselves, but the reaction of mankind to those judgments in verses 20 and 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by those plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. Down through the centuries, God has used all kinds of methods to call men to repentance. He has provided evidence of fulfilled prophecy. He has provided evidence of changed lives of individuals who have given themselves over to God. He has repeatedly revealed warnings of coming judgment. But the day is coming when he is finally going to get the intention of the entire world. And the way that God will do this is through pain. The great C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is, a, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the word Lewis says, pain is the megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world. So the purpose of the intensifying judgments of Revelation is to capture the world's attention. The purpose is not to punish. The purpose is to call men to redemption. Revelation chapter 7 tells us that many will respond. But here, from here to the end of the book of Revelation, God reveals that although many do respond and are saved, most, most do not. They're gods who have not been able to keep them from the judgments of the true God. The deeds that have brought them God's wrath. And yet they refuse to worship and obey God. 
They choose death rather than life, darkness rather than light, bondage rather than freedom, guilt rather than peace, shame rather than honor, and hell rather than heaven. That's hard to conceive, but it is the truth. Some, even when they know that what they're seeing is the rightful judgment of God, still refuse to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in those last days, even in the midst of those fearful judgments, your purpose is not to punish man, but your purpose is once again to give man an opportunity to repent, that your purpose is redemption. Father, I pray that you'd help us as your people to live our lives in such a way that we would cause men and women, those around us, to understand that knowing Jesus makes a difference. makes a difference in how we live our lives, how we conduct our lives on a daily basis. Help us know to never get to the place that we harden our hearts to the point that even when we see you moving in our lives, we refuse to repent. And help us to be ready to, to share with the, the world that does not know the truth, the horrible truth that they're choosing by refusing to choose you. Father, we ask for your guidance and direction in their closing of this service. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.